It's an unfortunate fact that the elderly are taken advantage of every day. While the laws are complicated and constantly changing, the wisest and safest way to keep track of them all is to call elder law attorney Michael Cohen. Having devoted his career to informing and protecting the elderly, Michael communicates about the law in ways that you and your loved ones will surely understand. Join us now to know your legal rights with Michael Cohen and co-host Don Crawford Jr. Here's Michael and Don. This is, once again, Know Your Legal Rights. My name is Don Crawford, Jr. I'm the owner of KWAM Radio God Country, Texas, 770 AM, and I'm sitting with Michael Cohen. Hello, Michael. Hello, Don. How you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Um, today, we're going to talk about, not necessarily a different topic, but something we don't always talk about, which is government assistance, which applies to many of our listeners and or their caretakers, um, and that is the Medicaid issue. And we have more of a complicated scenario here where you wanted to discuss with them uh, one where the individual was able to secure Medicaid, but they had some complications, some out-of-state issues they had to deal with. And you wanted to, especially, Michael, we decided this was the right thing to do because so many people were moving into Texas from places like California, Illinois, New York, and the like. Yeah, um, that is true. As we know in Dallas in particular, that. Uh, in Dallas and Fort Worth area, that there's a lot of people moving from out of state. And as a result, uh, it should be noted a lot of times we have to deal with uh, the fact that they may have property out of state. Uh, the problem is is that uh, for Medicaid, long-term care Medicaid in particular, that Medicaid, first of all, long-term care Medicaid, let me just tell you what it is. It's a program which helps pay for, let's say, if you're in a nursing home, sometimes assisted living, or sometimes even at home, uh, if you are disabled enough and they look at the amount of assets that you have. Now, Medicaid, long-term care Medicaid, is something that is a presently a joint program between the federal government and the state governments, but each, rule, each state has their own rules. Now, by the way, I mention that because... Uh, uh, we do anticipate there might be some changes in there. There may be changes in laws in the near future. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Trump has proposed Medicaid block grants, whereby uh, there, the states would take lesser funds but would have more control over uh, how the money is spent, not having to go necessarily as much by the federal guidelines. They can make basically make their own rules but get less money. Oh. So this is so it's really so that gets where the census becomes important too, uh, you know the census this year the 2020 census, you know in Texas we have a lot of probably quite frankly a lot of people who are don't want to register because of fear of uh, that they might be considered an alien or an immigrant or mm-hmm. whatever, and 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 also it's important for you know seniors to sign up too. A lot of these will be done online, although there'll be there'll be things in the mail. 
uh, as well. It's in, it is important for everybody to sign the census. I know that's not the topic of this program, mm-hmm. but uh, because that may make a difference on how many seats we have in Congress and and on how much funds like that would be if we do have a Medicaid block grant program, that may make a difference on that census on how many dollars we get. Right. So that is a, a extremely important, and it, which would has a lot of difference in dollars. And well, do you, re- do you remember exactly what the income requirements are for Medicaid as of today? Oh, sure. Okay. Well, well, okay. There's different Medicaid programs, or in Texas, at least forty or fifty Medicaid programs, each with their own rules. But as far as the long-term care Medicaid, uh, the income cap is $2,349 a month. Okay. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about all these different types of trusts that you could do uh, for planning for Medicaid eligibility. Uh, I neglected to say that that was one of another type of trust that we could have mentioned. Uh, is called a qualified income trust, also known as a Miller Trust, for those who are old like me who can remember when that law was passed uh-huh. in Texas in 19. 1994. So there's um, so if you have a not all states have income caps. Um, Texas is in the minority of states that they do. The re- rationale for this is that the cost of care is far greater than the amount of income uh, that was allowed for eligibility. So let's say the average nursing home for a semi, let's say is sixty five hundred dollars a month in the Dallas Fort Worth, or actually in the Texas in Texas, mm-hmm. Dallas Fort Worth is actually more expensive. But um, so if it's sixty five hundred dollars uh, a month that cost care, and your income is twenty five hundred dollars, and you're ineligible for Medicaid, and let's say you had zero assets, mm-hmm. so what the how would you? Have eligibility if you have zero assets and the cost of care is greater uh, is greater than the amount of income that you have. Right. So in the, this goes back to a case in 1990 uh, called Miller versus Ibarra. It was a Colorado case for those who are interested. You see, attorneys like to quote these different types of cases. You'll have to forgive me. So, but it was that's how they got the name Miller Trust. So mm-hmm. it was based on this case where they created this uh, this trust where they just put the income in the trust. In those days, they had a different tax ID number um, that's since changed. It was based on that case because Colorado was also an income cap state that the. Um, that we have a a Miller Trust. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you just put your income in the trust, and if you're single, then that income, if you're in a nursing home, goes for the most part to the nursing home as your share. So in our example... Of a, that we said a minute ago, if you had income of $2,500, then most of that $2,500 would go as your share and the government would subsidize the difference. Okay. Now, there are a few deductions. One is $60 for personal needs allowance, mm-hmm. uh, assuming um, you're in a nursing home. Another one would be uh, if you have a Medicare supplement premium, so we don't uh, you still want to make sure you have Medicare so that if you have to go to the hospital, so they uh, allow a deduction for that. Your Medicare Part B and D premiums, you know, B is for, you know, doctors and D is for for drugs. Those things, they allow those deductions. So, uh, And if you're married, by the way, and if the income of the spouse is less than, Right now, $3,160.50, then some of that income, instead of going to the nursing home, could go to this 
to the well spouse, also known as the community spouse. Okay. So, um, in any event, uh, yeah, if you're if you have too much income, that that's not to be confused, by the way, with supplemental security income. You don't a supplemental security income. A lot of times, people, especially if they're under sixty five, happen to be disabled. They may never have worked. Uh, they uh, have. Um, uh, you get the cap is. Um, you know, one third, let's say 783, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the 2439. Yep. And so the um, you cannot do a Miller Trust or a Qualified Income Trust, also known as a QIT, mm-hmm. for that. So it's different rules for different types of programs. And even on the Qualified Income Trust, if you're at home, let's say you, the state sometimes pays for caregivers to come to the house. There, if you're single uh, and and you had this, your income was over twenty three forty nine. Let's say you need thirty five hours a week for care at home, then you could do, and your income was over that twenty three forty nine. Then the excess over the twenty three forty nine, the excess would go to the state for the pay for the caregivers, okay. whereas you get to keep the first twenty three forty nine. Okay. So these rules are different depending on actually even location of where you are. And this income can come from any source, correct? Employment, alimony. Well, you pension. wouldn't. You're 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 not likely to be employed if you're that disabled. True. But it could be a pension, it could be an annuity, Social Security. Security. Social Security and pension are the most common uh, situations where the income exceeds the cap. So um, uh, anyway, when the laws, we we started to talk about somebody who is out of state, and in our case, uh, anyway, I was saying that the rules are different from state to state, and at this time, although it could be in the future that people will have Medicaid block grants where it might be uh, different also, that we may not be going so much by the federal rules, but based on the rules as they exist today, uh, if you're going to go by Texas laws, you have to be a resident of Texas. Okay, and is Texas a more friendly to Medicaid state, would you say, relatively? Well, it depends upon the way you look at it. Uh, uh, in some respects, there are certain things that are are beneficial. So, for example, we do, we're in the minority of states that allow ladybird deeds. A ladybird deed is a, a deed that's used usually uh, because Medicaid has, because Medicaid, if you're single, the state has a right to make a claim against your homestead, even though it doesn't count, as an asset, if it has an equity value of under $595,000, okay. the home doesn't count as an asset. By the way, if you're married, there's no limit. Uh, if the state has a right to make a claim against that home after your death to the extent that Medicaid benefits have been advanced, we're in the minority estate allows a ladybird deed, which means that you're in control of your home until you die, and then that property is deeded to you know, whoever your beneficiary might be, typically children. Mm-hmm. So we're in the minority states allows that. Uh, there, one of the other benefits is we allow transfers to UTMA accounts, uh, uniform transfers to minors' accounts. So if you have a grandchild or even a great-grandchild, in ex- exception to the five-year look-back period for Medicaid as far as uh, being penalized. Another thing is that IRAs, if you're over 70 and a half, do not count as an asset for Medicaid, whereas in a lot of most of the states it may count as an asset. So those things are positive for Texas. Uh, on the other hand, the reimbursement rates by the uh, government to the 
for Medicaid are one of the worst in the nation, 49th. So our reimbursement rate, so the problem is that our uh, sometimes the quality of care, uh, now there are some places that are fine and a lot of places that are not fine. And so the, the problem is the reimbursement rates from the government are not as good as we'd like, so we're, we're more into budgetary concerns as opposed to maybe uh, health issues uh, that could concern our seniors uh, or disabled people, uh, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, so it's gotten to be, you know, where do you cut your cost uh, versus the health of people. So this is kind of like the debates that we're seeing with the presidential issues about do we have, uh, are we are we more concerned about health or are we more concerned about budget? Mm-hmm. And, and and I'm not telling which people to go which way or another. I'm just saying that that this is the issue. Uh, it's, you know, we were talking about Medicaid block grants just a second ago. I know that wasn't the topic originally of the show, but really it's a way to kind of kill Obamacare uh, indirectly mm-hmm. uh, by doing things that uh, that would be difficult for um, uh, different, you know, the House of Representatives to maybe overturn. So we see that there's a real possibility that um, – uh, that that could occur, and on the other hand, you see that Democrats have kind of focused on these at these debates and stuff on health care, and and uh, so now you're starting to see a little bit of these type of issues, mm-hmm. because then you say, well, is it are we? What, what's it's not a right or wrong answer. It's just whatever you feel. Right. What's best um, for the country? Yeah. What is best for the country? Mm-hmm. And I and I'm not sure that we know the answer to that, mm-hmm. but. Um, the, the bottom line is so there's good and there's bad, mm-hmm. uh, it just like there is on uh, everything and everybody in life. Let me ask you, as a side note, they say some people mistakenly think that the IRS gift tax exemption extends to Medicaid. No. And that's a yeah. big one, right? Yeah. That's the most common misconception that there is. Uh-huh. Uh, as To make a – just to kind of let you know what people – a lot of people – I think this is probably – People get confused by the gift tax more than anything, uh, I think. Uh, First of all, for those who don't know, you could give up to $15,000 a year to anybody without reporting to the IRS. So let's say you had six children and you were single. That's $90,000 in a year that you could give away without reporting to the IRS. Another thing that people get confused by is that who is responsible for paying a gift tax if there is one? Exactly. Uh, most people think it's the one who receives the gift, but it's actually the one who makes the gift, the donor, that has a duty to report and have the gift tax. Another thing that's conf- uh, that's surprising to most people is that the you could give, even if you have a duty to report, that doesn't mean that there's a gift tax due. Mm-hmm. So let's say I get, had a child and I gave away $115,000 to that child. Does that mean I have a gift tax on that $100,000 excess? The answer is probably no, because you could use that, you could file a gift tax return, and in effect use the credit that you could give at your death during your life. What is the credit you give at your death? $11,580,000. So that would mean that you could only give $11,480,000, which most people don't have. Not bad. 
Right, right, right. So technically, that means I could have given away over $11 million in one year and not even pay a gift tax. Now, I'm not telling people to give away all their assets because there's lots of other issues to to discuss. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, what happens if you had given away assets that were highly appreciated? If you had kept it to death, you might have gotten a step up in basis. And so then you would have that your loved one would have had to pay capital gains tax, which could go up to twenty three point eight percent of the appreciation, uh, and that would be a substantial tax. Sure. Now for Medicaid, as you just mentioned, there is a um, on the long term care Medicaid there is a five year look back period. What they do is they say if you made a gift within that five years, we think you did it on purpose to reduce your assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the presumption, as we said, have said many times, is the presumption is guilt. Uh, we have an awful case right now where we're going to have a difficult time. This is not going to be on the one that we started to talk about, where the person who is elderly is a quadriplegic. She lived with a um, significant other, and uh, unfortunately she... Got, well, I don't know if she got an accident or what happened, but she had to go into a nursing home, and they bought this house together. Well, after they, it wasn't in Texas. They lived in another state, and they tried to sell the property for three years, and they couldn't sell it, couldn't come close to selling it for fair market value. So finally the, the significant other uh, sold the uh, property, maybe had a, a power of attorney, uh, from the the, uh, the the quadriplegic and sold it for far less than fair market value. Mm-hmm. Well, the government assumes that if you sell something for less than fair market value, you did on purpose to reduce your assets to get eligible for Medicaid. Mm-hmm. That's a five-year, if it's done within five years. So if you, now, if you said, oh, we buy ugly homes, we have gotten by, not, not to be a commercial for, the, for that, although we'll be glad to take your uh, payments later. <laughs> uh, the, um, the, if so, a lot of times, you know, these people try to sell, buy homes at a discounted rate. And they, yeah, they mm-hmm. get investors or they, re, they redo the house or whatever and they sell it for a profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people just want to get rid of their homes because they can't get rid of it and they want the cash. Well, the problem with that is if you do it within five years for Medicaid is they look and see what's the fair market value. They ask what the property tax statement shows it's worth. And if it's sold for less than fair market value, they divide the average cost of a nursing home into the amount of that was sold for less than fair market value, and it could result in a transfer penalty. Mm. So if you make a gift within five years, even though your accountant may say, oh, you can give up to $15,000 a year per person, mm-hmm. be careful. It's not even just a gift of that. Anything that's sold for less than fair market value could result in a transfer penalty, resulting in disqualification for that, those valuable public benefits mm-hmm. for paying for care costs. So um, a lot of people do get confused by yeah. those gift tax laws, and I can't tell you everybody seems to get confused by that. Yeah. First of all, they think you they can. can. You said they all get confused. You think? I think that I think that they all do. I, I, I think that the great majority, mm-hmm. first of all, the, the people that I talk to say, "Oh, if somebody told me that I could always make a gift at fifteen thousand. That's true for gift 
for IRS purposes. Remember, as we've talked on prior shows, Mm -hmm. that may have been done to stop the Rockefellers from uh, uh, reducing the size of their estate so there'd be less estate tax. So they used to make gifts, and that's Mm -hmm. why there was a gift tax to begin with. Mm -hmm. But now, uh, but for Medicaid, uh, we think that, let's say, so let's say that the person, uh, it's not to say you can't rebut the presumption. So let's say you're perfectly healthy and you made a gift, or let's say you always tithed very common thing that people tithe. Mm-hmm. If you have a history of tithing, that's a gift. Right. And so the presumption is guilt. Right. But if you, uh, if you, you know, we usually get church records <coughs> of the tithing and show as a history. Mm-hmm. And so then generally that's okay. But let's say you had uh, gave to a charitable organization. One and time. Maybe. One time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had a stroke. No, no, no. Right. You the violated pres- the look-back period. You violated the look-back period. So uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about how people continue to do some different gifting, let's say, to children. I didn't really go into great detail. Remember we talked about doing a certain type of trust for Medicaid, that it, there was, it is subject to the five-year look-back. But let's say you always want to make gifts to the kids. So you do an irrevocable trust that you have elements of control. It's not a gift. It's an incomplete gift when you transfer assets into the trust. Mm-hmm. But then if you wanted to continue to make gifts to your children later on, we've gotten around the five – well, I mean, there's the five-year look back, but you continue to make your – let's say you always wanted to make gifts to children. Mm-hmm. That way you could make those gifts, um, um, and, and it won't go towards your – each time you make a gift because the clock started when you put the assets into the trust. So there's different types of planning for people who want to continue to um, be the bank for their children. Michael and I like football, and there's a, an announcer on college football named Lee Corso who always says – uh, not so fast, my friend. Well, <laughs> don't think you can, you can, you're exempt. Don't think that because of the fact that you plan to um, give money away and you're on Medicaid that that IRS gift tax exemption applies to you because it doesn't. That's a huge mistake almost everybody makes, according to Mike. Another mistake he would make is to not attend his next workshop. That is in March. That is March the 7th on a Saturday or March the 26th, which is a Thursday. And we're short on time because we have to finish up the story, Mike, about those people who, want, who had Medicaid and had property at a state. We haven't even gotten to that yet. But these workshops are very helpful. They allow you to ask questions about your individual circumstances. And then if you attend the workshop, you get to do a free vision meeting, which you meet with Michael privately, again, to address your estate planning or government assistant issues in a more broader uh, and deeper fashion. The way to do that is go to DallasElderLawyer.com, DallasElderLawyer.com, or just type in, uh, Google in Dallas Elder Lawyer, That'll, Michael will come up, or Michael Cohen's name, Dallas, that will come up. He's one of the top attorneys in all of Texas for many reasons. And to do that, again, go to DallasElderLawyer.com or dial 214-720-0102, 214-720-0102. With about five minutes left, Michael, um, you're going to have to finish up that story. Because <laughs> important one with the property out of state. All right. Well, I'll, I'll try to make this brief. Okay. If we started talking, we said, look, if you have, since the rules are different from each from state to state, you have to be a resident of the state to get benefits okay. from that state. So to to uh, and and also we talked uh, a couple weeks ago we talked a little bit about trust and we said if you put a home in a revocable trust it counts as an asset. So the first thing is we had a person that was out of state 
and they were they came since parent wanted to be closer to the children who were in Texas. Uh, they moved parents from out of state, from their home out of state, to be to, tex- to Texas. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing we have to do is take the property out of the trust because it counts as a resource. I see. So a home in a revocable trust counts as a resource. And if they were in Texas, if we put it to their in their individual name, it would not count as a resource. Mm. However, we still got one more problem. Their income was too great for eligibility for Medicaid, so they had to, quote-unquote, spin down. So if your resources are greater, the, the cap in Texas right now is 128640 of countable resources. Mm-hmm. And since the home was out of state, it counted. And they look at the assets on the first day of each month at 12.01 a.m. So let's say that he that mom went into a nursing home in November uh, and they had too much assets. If we get the assets below whatever the limit was, and they, there's a way to calculate, which I don't really have the time to go into, but let's just say it was the 128640 maximum limit. Then if you get below that limit before December 1, the next month, let's say, then there'll be eligibility as of that month. Mm-hmm. So here we take the house out of the trust. Oh, and I forgot to tell you, if you put a property up for sale, no matter what type of property, doesn't have to be a home, mm-hmm. if you place it up for sale, it doesn't count as an asset under the Medicaid rules. Okay. So they placed the property up for sale. You had a listing agreement, and so therefore it didn't count. Now, if it had sold then it would become cash, and cash would count as an asset, and then you'd have to do something with that money. Uh, there are different things that do not count. So we would put things in do not count. So, for example, a pre-need funeral. We all die sometimes uh, at some time. Mm-hmm. So a funeral doesn't count as long as you waive your right to cancel the contract. Actually, burial spaces for children do not count. A car doesn't count. We've talked about the home doesn't count. So if you make repairs or improvements to the home, that doesn't count. Personal property items do not count. Mineral rights, if they're worth less than $6,000 that generate at least a 6% rate of return, doesn't count. In this case, that was another problem they had. Uh, they wanted the mineral rights to stay in the family, and it was worth uh, much more than the $6,000 limit. So what we did was we ha- – and and also because the institutionalized spouse's income uh, may have had to go to the facility – what we did was we had the kids um, buy for fair market value those mineral rights. So now it stays in the family. We could do something with the cash. There's less income that would be their share that would go to the facility. So you see here um, we've done different types of things mm-hmm. all within the rules that this way you could save the difference at least, at the very least, between the difference between that person's income and the cost of care. And, and, and if the if the well spouse's income was lower than this certain limit, three thousand one sixty fifty, then there could have even uh, diverted some of the income of the ill spouse to the well spouse. Excellent. There it is. How many times did Mike just say it doesn't count, it doesn't count, doesn't count in the last three or four minutes? I, I couldn't count the doesn't counts, um, but that's the rapid fire that Michael does. It's interesting. Um, when you go to the workshops, the audience, the attendees rapid fire Mike. When you go to the vision meeting, Mike rapid fires them. 
because they ask Mike all these questions. What about this? What about this? What about this? And Michael, just like he does in the show, reads nothing. It's all in his head. Everything you heard today, he didn't read one word and he never reads. He's always telling you what he knows based on his experience and knowledge, which makes him, in my mind, one of the top attorneys in this entire mammoth state of Texas and why you should attend the next workshop. So you can rapid fire him with your question and then go to that vision meeting with a lot more questions coming from him to make sure your plan is rock solid. Go to DallasElderLawyer.com, DallasElderLawyer.com, or just Google Dallas Elder Lawyer or Michael Cohen, or dial 214-720-0102, 214-720-0102 for those two workshops on Saturday, March the 7th, and Thursday, March the 26th. Dallas Elder Law Attorney Michael Cohen, I thank you, sir. Thank you, Don. Leading estate planner practicing law in Dallas, Texas for decades now, Michael Cohen is ready to educate you about the estate planning laws that can affect your family and you. The first step is to attend his next workshop by going to his website, which is DallasElderLawyer.com. That's DallasElderLawyer.com to sign up for that free estate planning essentials workshop. Or you can also call him by dialing 214 214- 720-0102. That's 214-720-0102. A talk show host on 770-KAAM for six years, Michael Cohen is the person you want to evaluate and complete what could currently be a deficient estate plan. Make sure it is done your way and sign up for his next workshop today 214-720-0102.